welcome. Um, if you don't know what Erdogan House is, uh, it's basically a centre for postgraduate students in the humanities uh, through the extraordinarily generous gift of Mika Ertegen, who's an interior designer in New York and the widow of Amit Ertegen, the founder of Atlantic Records. Uh, and obviously gifts in the humanities are very exceptional and this is a remarkable one which will eventually provide <coughs> 35 graduate scholarships, uh, graduate scholarships specifically in the humanities across all the disciplines and most of this house actually consists of graduate workspace uh, which is on the upper floors and Kelsey is one of them and Manuel there is another one and if you want to as well, ask them a bit more about it you can ask them during the breaks. We then have these public spaces which are very nice um, where we will host public events. Our priority is events specifically focused on the interests of the individual scholars. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much for coming. Um, one person who couldn't come uh, is a visiting professor of law from St. Petersburg who sent me a very nice note, or wrote to Kelsey and me, and said that um, she was very interested in the question because she was still trying to figure out what the answer was. Uh, <laughs> was there a Russian Enlightenment? Will there be a Russian Enlightenment? Um, but... Uh, Kelsey uh, and I are particularly interested, and there are others here who are very interested in the period of Catherine the Great and in the 18th century more generally. Uh, and it's, we clearly live in the best of all possible worlds uh, if we have so many people here on a Saturday morning uh, willing to share ideas and engage in conversation uh, on this question. Um, I'm going to make a few introductory remarks. Uh, it wasn't a task. It was a task I found very difficult, giving myself, you know, 20 minutes or five pages to try to give an état présent uh, of where we are and to try to speak to specialists as well as non-specialists and give a bit of an overview. But I think this is a very dynamic field. 18th-century studies is. I see Jerry Smith, who's a great enlightener, my former supervisor, sitting there, and um, things have changed a lot. Uh, over the past 20 or 30 years, uh, which is why we're, I think, a very good moment. Um, now, this picture some of you may have had occasion to see recently by Rokotov, which is a copy of a portrait by uh, Roslin, a Swedish artist, uh, was the focal point of um, a recent exhibition at the National Museum of Scotland called Catherine the Great, an Enlightenment Empress. Uh, and you might think the title alone settles the question, and we can all go home. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that the curators certainly deserve credit for displacing the emphasis away from the life and every year brings a new biography of Catherine most recently uh, we've had Simon Dixon's very scholarly biography uh, reviewed, if you Google James Craycraft, Simon Dixon you'll find a fascinating review very positive review online but also the New York Times bestseller Robert Massey uh, you know, who's returned to his roots as writing big popular histories. He's written a big life. And I think the curators of this um, exhibition deserve a lot of credit for taking the content of the reign, the iconography of the reign, uh, seriously. There's very little commentary on Catherine's uh, life. And perhaps one should expect to see no less uh, in high-minded Edinburgh, which is the capital of the Scottish uh, Enlightenment, and home of David Hume, a philosopher whose appreciation in Russia, for example, remains almost impossible to determine, uh, to ascertain. Uh, 
So the question is, does an enlightened empress make an enlightenment? Uh, now, different points of view circulated during Catherine's reign, and they jostled with her own fascinating attempts to manage public opinion, a subject about which we'll hear shortly when Kelsey gives her paper. Uh, in thinking about the Russian Enlightenment, the temptation is to start at the top, uh, and many have done so. The historiography devoted to the question of Catherine's intentions uh, and the proportion of despot to enlightener uh, is rich in argument and rich in speculation. Uh, speculation about whether Catherine's myriad reforms and initiatives constituted a genuine commitment to certain ideals held to be enlightened, or whether they were a screen behind which authoritarian power structures functioned. Those questions may well come up uh, again today, and of course we'd welcome them. We have uh, Douglas Smith has yet to arrive, but uh, I know he's in the country from Seattle, but we'll have Douglas here and Andre Zorin, uh, who have looked very productively at the relationship of politics and cultural values and practice in the reign of Catherine the Great. But I thought, if I'm trying to set an agenda for, for today or signpost some parts of a map, give a map for the discussion, I thought we might, by way of an alternative, begin to think about the subject of today's colloquium, Was There a Russian Enlightenment?, by considering the problem of knowing what an enlightenment looks like. Uh, because it's worth asking the question, because um, it's been asked surprisingly little in the Russian context, where attention has been deflected onto the enlightened despot issue, and where there's been little synthesis amidst a growing body of valuable studies of institutions, history of the book, and much more. The, the conceptual framework of Enlightenment studies has changed enormously over the past decades. Uh, and if you look at the most recent London Review of Books, there's an article by Margaret Jacob, which I think uh, gives us... It's an attack on Jonathan Israel, one of many, <laughs> the latest. Uh, but it actually um, gives a very helpful overview of some of the... Um, uh, an overview or a potted history of recent practice. Um, and so scholarship in the Enlightenment has changed a lot over the past decades. It is rare, uh, especially now that radical Enlightenment and counter-Enlightenment are necessary terms of discourse, to see, for instance, scholars invoke the age of reason. Although uh, I note that Sarah Maza, distinguished social historian, is at ease using the term. I wonder whether she wants to be provocative. Um, but the exclusive emphasis on rational inquiry and Newtonian science as uh, a litmus test, an acid test of progress or as a key to progress, as a weapon against superstition, that age of reason model now looks narrow. Um, and uh, Nicholas and I were talking about Dan Edelstein's recent essay, elegant essay, and I wonder whether he's actually not very conservative in trying to revive um, that style of thought uh, approach. Uh, there, are, uh, there is a plurality of textbook enlightenments uh, now available. Uh, the questions that one might ask, first and foremost, are not just about the acceptance of rational doctrine or faith in critical intellect to produce a single system of laws according to which the truth of nature and human behavior can be explained. Uh, while that philosophical requirement might be a desirable condition if we had to have an enlightenment, other priorities now inform discussions. And they include, um, I'm going to sort of read out a set of uh, points, a list. that It's not a checklist, but perhaps it is in a way. Um, and they include a wish, first, to consider whether the Enlightenment is largely a social phenomenon, namely about the amelioration of the average life thanks to benevolent, benevolent top-down policies, 
or whether the Enlightenment is a phenomenon of sociability. <coughs> that might, might or might not mean the emancipation of the serfs as a theoretical good in the Russian context. Second, uh, there is the wish to see whether the Enlightenment is local or international, based on a common legacy, or whether a particular national profile is key. Uh, the debate um, that's been conducted in Western historiography uh, for about the past 30 years has never really, I think, reached Russian studies. Uh, Roy Porter and Mikhail Washtik, uh, in the Enlightenment International Context, represented, as I read them, a game-changing compromise, arguing for regional variation within a broadly agreed set of values. And the hypothesis of a single philosophical movement, <coughs> undeterred by linguistic boundaries, is one of Jonathan Israel's dogmas in his massive revisionist history. Another wish is to determine whether the map of good morning, just to determine whether the map of enlightenment requires a finer grain of differentiation and should be written as micro-histories of city-states or cities like Edinburgh, centres that are self-sustaining but cosmopolitan. So you might not have a national enlightenment, but you might have um, a cosmopolitan or urban enlightenment. Uh, or to ask whether the polity consists of smaller minimal groups of a kind that Franco Venturi identified for Italy. Can a critical mass be achieved in single numbers? Were clubs and Masonic lodges always rebellious coteries and hotbeds of Republican tendencies? How radical must small groups be to count as enlightened? Must their principles include all of toleration, independence of the press, opposition to the authority of the church. Uh, the Russianists among us, I think, will find that or agree that there are figures at Catherine's court in the 1780s who might be fairly understood as representatives of a moderate enlightenment, um, but they include mystical Freemasons. I'm glad that happened as I was about to pronounce the word Illuminati. <laughs> It, it shows uh, there is a God, right? <laughs> um, there are figures at Catherine's court in the 1780s who uh, include, include mystical Freemasons and Illuminati um, who might be thought of as representatives of a moderate enlightenment uh, whose politics are not particularly radical. Um, to see whether the right conditions exist for the free circulation of ideas, ideally in institutions of the public sphere with its modes and places of exchange like cafes, parks, Andreas has written very interestingly about parks and gardens, journals, newspapers and Masonic lodges. Uh, and we all know there's been this vast literature um, that uh, Habermas has opened up uh, on the comparative study of the public sphere. Uh, and an investigation of whether there is Enlightenment would wish to consider the role of independent intellectual initiative. Uh, there is still room for a narrative about the Enlightened despot as the driver of change, but now Voltaire or Beccaria or Radishev deservedly get a lot of attention as standard bearers of, champ uh, of Enlightenment ideas. Now, John Robertson, in his important The Case for Enlightenment, argues that even where public debate is only a semblance or a theatrical simulation, such notional debate mattered because it meant that intellectual positions were not just given in secret. Uh, they were made a matter of independent initial intellectual initiative, however restricted the sphere. And I think that's, again, a very interesting proposition for the Russian uh, context, where you know, if you try to quantify the penetration of ideas, circulation of books, you might be a little discouraged. But, uh, And we would also wish to describe how scientific academies functioned, the connection between patronage and ideology, the tolerance of heterodox learning and taxonomies of learning in the physical sciences, 
and relatedly to see how the social diffusion of ideas such as historians since Robert Danton um, have described the working of the dissemination of ideas. Um, now, while the activity of the philosophes as a party of enlightenment might be a necessary condition for certain achievements like the Encyclopédie, just how the book trade diffused new ideas, how the cost and availability of books shaped the flow of ideas, sometimes across boundaries, matters just as much in explaining how and why and who felt emboldened to dare to know, in Kant's famous phrase. And I'll just give some examples of book history in the Russian context in a moment. And, um, yes, so our speakers today, so that I think is quite a list, um, but and quite an agenda, but it seems to me that if you could tick all or some, or, uh, the question is, you know, how many boxes do you need to tick in order to have an enlightenment, and what is the dominant, um, the dominant uh, feature in the system um, that, um, that suggests uh, a progressive movement. Now, our speakers today were set the brief not of answering the question outright, it's not a die yet, sort of thing, uh, but of sharing their research with us in the hope that we might, together with the audience, open up the, the question. So I'm hoping that the, the points I've just made, uh, about which we might have some debate later, might at least help to serve us as headwords, key rubrics by which to think about the separate stories that each speaker will tell us. Now, if a combination of these criteria constitutes a core definition of enlightenment, what part does the Russian play in our question? Uh, in the case of Russia, enlightenment is one part of a bigger story of westernization. And a true overview is clearly impossible here. But the non-Russianists in the audience might find a few reminders helpful. Uh, points about scale, uh, some figures, some numbers, uh, some dates, <clears throat> as we move into papers that consider discrete aspects of Russian cultural circumstance. The Russian story gains enormous momentum with Peter the Great, obviously, uh, in the late 17th century um, until the mid-1720s, uh, with Peter the Great, whose social, economic, and military policies devoted intellectual energy and resources to developing pragmatic solutions to economic backwardness. A true technocrat, this reforming czar restructured the military, administration, and church bureaucracy, and also laid down some of the foundations institutionally for scientific inquiry and social reforms that had lasting consequences. Yet Europeans who visited Russia in the first half of the 18th century were not impressed. <clears throat> Two such critical travellers come to mind, and so they can focalise uh, this mini-history uh, for us. In 1739, Algarotti, the swan of Padua, uh, someone else uh, I got there first actually Virgil <laughs> originally was called the Swan of Padua but uh, Algarotti um, more for his beauty I think his personal beauty than his uh, gifts as a poet um, uh, inherited the mantle <coughs> the Swan of Padua travelled to St Petersburg he was inclined to take a positive view of Russia because he read he understood the Russian opposition to the Ottoman Empire as a type of westernism but what he found in St Petersburg did not impress him a rickety construction, nothing like as eternal as Rome. Um, despite the belief of Peter the Great's eulogist, the clergyman Fefan Prakapovich, that like Augustus, Peter had left behind a city in marble. Well, Fefan um, Algarotti doubted that. He also found nothing of the intellectual world of Western Europe or anything even compatible with the cultural, uh, the cultural practices of the court of Frederick. 
Some 20 years later, the French astronomer Chape d'Autroche was more systematic and comprehensive in a famous account. Uh, by the way, there's a fantastic edition of Chape d'Autroche's Voyage uh, en Sibérie, uh, published by the Voltaire Foundation, uh, edited by Michel Mervaux, uh, who does these things very well. Um, and Chape... Um, Sharp's account, of course, was bitterly contested by Catherine the Great in her famous Antidote. Uh, but uh, he describes his journey to Siberia in 1761, and it begins with the declaration, Les Russies, renfermées dans leur contrée au commencement de ce siècle, n'avaient aucune liaison avec l'Europe civilisée. On savait à peine qu'il existait dans ces climats classés un peuple ignorant et grossier. Uh, Sharp proved to be far more enthusiastic about insect specimens uh, than, than he was about the natives. And <laughs> there's a whole chapter if you, um, uh, about the natives. He also criticized Russian commanders for not knowing their Xenophon or Herodotus. Um, he saw Petersburg as a great looking glass through which Russia um, had seen onto Europe. Sharp saw Peter, uh, he experienced Russia mainly from the east, not actually from metropolitan centers. But he still expressed little satisfaction with what he saw in the capital. Now, enlightenment isn't only about the quality of roads or unreliable infrastructure, which is a subject of Sharp's persistent complaints, and many Russians have the same or have the same complaints. Visits to factories, to schools, and to bathhouses failed to disabuse him of his doubt that a country of the size and location of Russia, even just European Russia, could achieve a measure of civilization, and that's his word. His faith in Montesquieu's laws of nations, and he's a devotee of Montesquieu, um, I think in inclined him not to do so. The eloge for Chape after his death cited him as a jeune apôtre de la philosophie, and that may be part of the problem. There was little philosophy to be enjoyed in Russia circa 1761. When he made his visit, philosophy had scarcely, philosophy or natural philosophy, had scarcely any institutional or disciplinary identity in Russia. There had been no co overt Copernican revolution, for instance, which Sasha might tell us about, uh, or he might dispute that. Uh, unlike France, where the growth of colleges and university opened minds to new ideas of a heterodox kind, higher education and scientific learning were strictly limited to St. Petersburg and Moscow, and even there um, were really the kind of precinct of one or two academies. No liberal professional elite of a kind comparable in number with the European Republic of Letters engaged in philosophical speculation. However, and I'm coming to the kind of the launch pad for today's discussion. Uh, if Sharp had been less blinkered, he might have noticed changes. He might have noticed the, the, the start of a different story that might have given him pause. Um, while the instruments of control established by orthodox autocracy remained in place, the establishment of the Academy of Sciences in the 1720s created a haven for scientific work. At this point, it would be hard to talk about the social diffusion of ideas, one of our signposts of enlightenment, but an institutional history had begun. At the Academy of Sciences, where more Germans than Russians worked, at least initially, ferment, ferment was in the physical sciences, now, scientists did not aspire either to produce rational arguments for confessional beliefs, but some Russians, perhaps enough for a Venturi-like analysis, possessed knowledge of Western philosophical um, systems, such as Leibniz's philosophy and Wolf's ideas. Uh, if followers of natural philosophy silently capitulated with theological orthodoxy, um, it didn't mean they were not 
doing interesting, having interesting thoughts privately, and that new ideas were not um, informing their work. For instance, uh, it would be very interesting, one project, small project I'm thinking about at the moment, is to look a bit more closely at Lamanosov's library and Lamanosov's reading, where we find that he had all sorts of heterodox things, including Bell's Dictionnaire Philosophique, uh, which is annotated. Uh, why was he reading that? We know we can see why he was reading Boyle on chemical uh, theory, but why was he reading Bell? Why was he reading Descartes? Uh, he must have had one of the only copies in Russia uh, of Descartes. Um, so there's, there's no Bell in translation, there's no Shaftesbury, there's no Hume, there's no Spinoza. But there were now pockets in both Moscow and St. Petersburg um, uh, which grew to in include groups of learned men, including Ambassador Dmitry Galitsin, uh, who uh, was ambassador to The Hague, who met Diderot uh, and is an important figure. Um, Diderot, we'll hear about Diderot's visit to Russia in the 1770s, uh, a good 50 years on. Now, books are a good metric, I think, for uh, measuring enlightenment. So what about the book trade? Well, single printing presses were lodged in the government and synod in the reign of Peter the Great. Uh, in 1725, t ten titles came off the presses, or rather the press, and two of them were calendars. In 1736, 17 titles were published by the state press, of which three were about fireworks. One was a calendar, and two were verse pamphlets in praise of the ill-fated Empress Anna Ioannovna. So, not great bedside reading. Uh, by 1760, however, so 1760, Moscow University is founded in 1755. Moscow University owned 11 printing presses, and by the mid-1760s, those presses were printing close to 40 books a year. Um, this is a long story, but it's a story of geometric um, growth. And between 1756 and 1775, uh, Moscow University Press alone published nearly 700 Russian-language titles, and well over 800 titles in all. At the same time, I'm not going to talk about pedagogical history, but there's a big change there and a huge expansion in the numbers of seminarians who are, um, are being educated. And the historian Mark Ryev concluded that it was believed by the 1760s, it was believed that unless a Russian acquired a smattering of everything that the West had to offer, he could not be considered educated or even civilized. So, you know, rats to you, Shabdotrosh. Uh, by the last third of the century, noblemen, and perhaps some women too, perhaps even nuns, uh, Andrei might tell us, uh, would discover in writing and in reading a mirror to their minds and souls. Now, uh, to conclude uh, these introductory remarks, I, I hope I'm not jumping the gun as convener by making argument for or against enlightenment. Uh, I am using a few facts, a book history, of history of institutions, and ideas as a convenient shorthand to suggest a momentum towards something new, which is undeniable, to a point where theatres and public spaces existed. Alexey Yevstratov will talk to us about the theatre, uh, possibly the theatre as a public space, uh, where rational inquiry gained sponsorship, where there was an openness to international exchange. We now have libraries, we now have the circulation of books. There is also a new sense of private identity based on education that emerges among single individuals and sometimes as a sense of class identity. Uh, where the local is measured against a universal standard. There is much evidence of a daring to know, that Kantian phrase, and the figures of uh, Novikov and Platon, 
who are uh, much praised by Simon Dixon in a piece that's very sceptical about the Russian Enlightenment, achieved a great deal. Now, whether the Enlightenment must leave a lasting legacy uh, is an is open question or a different question. Um, but um, I think it's fair to say that if Sharp had visited St. Petersburg in 1769 or 1774 or 1783 or 1785, dates that are various milestones that are milestones of various kinds in the reign of Catherine, um, how recognisable would he have found Russia? Were these changes the products of enlightenment? Were they the causes? Now, I know all of today's speakers reasonably well, uh, and I can't say I've ever asked any of them where they stand on the question uh, of whether Russia had an enlightenment. So I'm particularly curious about our discussion and whether we can reach a conclusion but I'd venture that we share a view that the accumulation of change that took place in the 18th century makes it possible to approach the Russian context from perspectives regularly applied to European Enlightenment or Enlightenments. So it's in that speculative spirit that I'd like to turn to our panellists. Uh, so the first speaker is um, Sasha alexander Yossad, uh, who's going to talk, uh, speak on the to- topic of religious dogma versus scientific progress towards a more nuanced approach to early Enlightenment issues in 18th century Russia. Um, Alex, Sasha, Sasha is in the first year of uh, DPhil that he's writing under the, in the history faculty here. Uh, he has a scholarship from the Kantimir Institute. Kantimir is a good name for Russian Enlighteners, and um, it's wonderful to catch him at the beginning of his um, investigation. 